sprayed and below. If you want to go follow your teachers and go and learn about the greatness of our Savior and our God in a way that's more appropriate for you. The rest of us are going to talk this morning about the scandal that is the priesthood. We're going to talk about the scandal that is the priesthood. Lest you think that's bad form, I will remind you that this is not only a Protestant church, that this is Reformation Sunday. And so it's probably altogether appropriate and good form that we talk about the scandal that is the priesthood. And having said that, I'll have to admit that I'm being a little facetious. We're not going to talk about the scandal that is the priesthood in the way that you might think. We're going to talk about it in light of Hebrews chapter 5. So I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles once again to Hebrews 5, where we're going to learn about how Jesus is the ultimate priest and how Jesus is the sufficient priest and how Jesus is the one and only mediator priest that we would ever need and to suggest that we would need any other sort of priest would be scandalous. And so that's where we're going this morning and uh, I'll admit my facetiousness and if I misled you, it was on purpose. Um, But I at least got your attention by saying what I said and we'll certainly bring it back around to that scandal at the end this morning. Super important that we talk about this business of Jesus being our priest in Hebrews 5 because uh, on the one hand, I realize some of you probably don't think you need a priest. Some of you probably think that you don't need a priest because you're fine with God and and it's just between you and God. And the reality is we're going to see here, not only in Hebrews 5, but Hebrews 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, that you most definitely need a priest. Everyone needs a priest. So it's really important for that. It's also really important on the other end of the spectrum that, that some of you might be thinking that you not only need a priest in Jesus, but you need other priests. You need lesser priests. You need someone else to sort of help Jesus, if you will, or help you to get closer to Jesus. And in Hebrews 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, which all deal with the priesthood of Jesus, will help you. It will help you tremendously to see that you really only need one sufficient priest. You really only need one mediator between you and God. And that mediator would be, to quote the Bible somewhere else, the one who is the one God and the one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. So that's where we're headed. Okay? Hebrews chapter 5 divides itself rather simply in three sections. So if you'd like to take notes and, and have an outline this morning, I'll, I'll highlight there, these three sections for you. Um, try to limit it to one word and one number. I'm going to have to make up two words though, so I'll find delight in it. Maybe you won't, but uh, if you want to break down Hebrews 5, um, the first section is in verses 1 to 4, and let's call it Priestology. Priestology. Maybe that's really a word, but according to my computer, it's not a word. So we're going we're gonna to make it a word. Priestology, and let's call it Priestology 101. That's in the first four verses. And really what it's getting at, as we'll see, just helping us all to understand how priesthood in the Old Testament works. Real basic level. And it's really important that we know Priestology 101 if we're going to understand who Jesus is. The second major phase in Hebrews chapter 5 uh, would be what we'll call Christology 101. And that is a word. Christology 101. The basics about who Jesus is as he would relate to the priesthood. We see this in verses 5 to 10. Priestology 
Christology. And number three, my favorite ology of all for the day is Woodshedology 101. Okay, we're going to look at Woodshedology 101, and that's in verses 11 to 14. Yes, I'm amusing myself. Um, <laughs> but you're at least listening now, right? Uh, this is where we get taken out back behind the house to the woodshed, and we receive admonishment. We receive confrontation because we should understand Christology if we're Christians, and we should understand Christology if we're Christians, and if we don't, we get a little dose of woodshedology, okay? So that's sort of the way things are going to go this morning. Uh, I'm delighted to be in Hebrews 5 today because we see this image of Jesus um, that is true, but we see this image of Jesus that, that perhaps is unmatched. It is unmatched, and I'm so thankful for the way God uses, according to his providence, the way he uses even these really bad errors, and, and he uses our, our convoluted, messed up thinking, and he uses heresy even, because he uses it in an amazing way, because he uses it for the benefit of the body of Christ to help us to have a right perspective and to clear our minds and our focus on who Jesus really is. And I find myself just wanting to worship Jesus Christ today like I wouldn't have otherwise. And I, and I hope you sense the same thing as we study this passage together and as you go, seeing that Jesus is indeed everything and he's the ultimate and he is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. Beginning with Priestology 101, our author gives us these first four verses explaining how priesthood in the Old Testament works. Let's go ahead and look at verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. I have two questions for you as you think about that verse. As you look at that verse, as you try to contemplate what it means, my first question is, so in light of that verse, who, who serves as a high priest? What does this verse tell us about who the high priest is going to be in the Old Testament world? And, and hopefully you can say, well, the person who choose, uh, who's going to be a high priest is one who's chosen among men. Our verse tells us that. So that tells us that it's going to be a human being, which is really important in this regard. Remember in chapter 2 of Hebrews, we, we saw the humanity of Jesus being celebrated. That's because he's the high priest, and we'll get there. But we do see chosen among men... Also, regarding that question, who serves as a high priest? Well, we do see in verse 1, it's not a self-designated person. It's one who is chosen. It's one who is appointed. And we're going to see that it's someone who's chosen and appointed by God. That's who serves as high priest. My next question I want you to be able to answer yourself. And as you read verse 1, as you think about it, the next question is, what does a high priest do? Well, what is the function? What, essentially, what, is it, what does a high priest do in the Old Testament? If we're going to understand high priestology 101, what, what do they do? And if you haven't figured it out yet, if you look um, toward the end, the second half, to act on behalf of men, so there's, there's representation in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So you can answer that question just like I can. The high priest represents humanity. It's his fellow men and women, fellow human beings to God, right? What's another word for that? 
if there's conflict and you're going to represent, you are then the what? You are the mediator. So the priest is a mediator between humanity and God. And we know mediator terminology is a good terminology to be using because of what he says at the very end of the verse, to offer sacrifices, uh, gifts and sacrifices for what? For sins. Now this might not fit with maybe our modern or postmodern sensibilities, and so priesthood doesn't make sense. But we are learning rather quickly if we read anything in the Bible is that we are sinners... And so we do, in fact, need a mediator between us and God because God is not a sinner. God is righteous and holy. We're sinners, which means uh, essentially rebels. So we've rebelled against this God. We have a conflict with this God, and he has a conflict with us. And so we need a mediator to represent us, to offer gifts and sacrifices for our rebellion, our sins, so that he can, to borrow from somewhere else in Hebrews, but appropriately so, so he can make atonement, so he can be a priest. Now, this is just real basic stuff that 99% of us already know. But wanting to not assume anything, since it's a 101 kind of class, the priest is chosen among men. He's a human being, chosen by God, as we will see, appointed by God, as we will see. And there's mediation. There's atonement to be offered, as we will see. So there's this conflict. And by the way, this is why I said earlier, everybody needs a priest. According to this mindset, because we're all sinners, everybody needs a mediator between us and God. And, and so priesthood should make a lot of sense to us. It doesn't because we're in perpetual denial and we think we're not sinners, but we, we all need a priest. Then let's keep going. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Can I see a show of hand? Never mind. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Pretty straightforward to understand. He's one of us. So he understands the struggles we go through because it's one of us. It's not an angel doesn't do this. It's it's a fellow human being. Verse 3, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And we can understand that too. How does this whole thing work? The priest is going to go and the priest is going to go and make sacrifice. The priest is going to go and make atonement for our sins as our representative, as our mediator. But he himself is fraught with weakness. In fact, weakness even that is morally uh, corrupt, it's going to be sin. And so he's got to make atonement for his own sin and then be able to go to God and make atonement for the sins of the people. Okay? So he's just explaining how the Old Testament priesthood works. Now, if your memory is, is halfway decent and you're remembering the flow of Hebrews, which may or may not be true, um, or if you're like me, you just draw circles and make connections all over your Bible so you can remember this stuff, you'll recall that if we're going to contrast this with Jesus as a mediator priest, which we'll need to, what, what makes this different than, than what's true about Jesus? Chapter 4, I think it's verse 15, Chapter 4, verse 15, there's the circle I have connected with this verse. The difference between this mediator who has to make atonement for his own sins and Jesus is that Jesus is what? He's without sin. Okay, so remember we added the chapter divisions for convenience. But he's already established Jesus, yes, is this one, but Jesus is without sin, so it makes him different. And yet we see the emphasis in Hebrews that he is like us in every way except without sin, so he can represent us. So there's an emphasis here on just explaining um, 
how Old Testament priesthood works, but I couldn't help but remind you about how Jesus is different according to chapter 4, verse 15. Then verse 4 says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. I told you we were going to see it spelled out explicitly. There it is. Just as Aaron was. He's assuming that we know about Aaron, which we may or may not know about Aaron, but in the Old Testament, in Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, Aaron is a Levite. Aaron is the brother of Moses. And then we keep reading in Exodus, like in Exodus 28, but we see that Aaron is a priest. You hear theologians talk, theology speak, and they talk about the Aaronic priesthood. So the point being is... Aaron is an example that an Old Testament person would understand and someone familiar with the Old Testament would understand. And uh, he was called by God to be a priest and that's just one of those requirements. So I really like learning the Old Testament this way. We're like Old Testament scholars now after four verses. We got it all figured out. We can act like we're really smart. We get the book of Hebrews. Well, it's maybe not that simple. But he's at least brought us up to speed so we're ready to understand how Jesus is the same Therefore, he can fulfill. Therefore, he can be the ultimate priest. But he's also going to emphasize how Jesus is different. As one of my friends like to say, it's the same, except different. Uh, Well, Jesus is the same, except different, um, with bad pronunciation and bad English. But anyway, we're going to see now, as we look at Christology, that Jesus didn't just show up on the scene without any point of reference, without any kind of similarity, he shows up as the one who is the perfect fit. He is the one we've been waiting for. With the types and with the shadows, with the system all set up, it was in anticipation of Jesus, who's the ultimate, perfect, high priest, who is our everything, and everything's been waiting for him. The same, except different. How do you spell set? I don't know, but I don't want to know either. And I'm not going to reveal to you where my friend is from, lest I talk about Mississippi or something like that and offend someone else who's from Mississippi. (sighs) Priestology 101. Got it figured out. Now let's move on to Christology 101, verses 5 to 10. This is really the rich part. So also, verse 5 says, Christ did not... Notice the similarity. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. Appointed was like we learned back in verse 1 and also in verse 4. He was appointed. There's similarity between he and the priesthood of the Old Testament. By him who who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's one of those set different things. Okay, he, he, he's just like the Old Testament priest because he was appointed by God. Jesus didn't just show up and say, well, I think I'm the best candidate for the job and I've, I've done a pretty good job with politicking, so I'm the guy. No, 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 no. He's appointed by God. We would even be able to look at the Gospels and see God himself speaks from heaven saying that he's the one. But not only is he the same in that sense, he's different in the sense that, did you notice at the end of that verse, quoting Psalm chapter 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's what makes Jesus stand out, not as less qualified, but we might say ultimately qualified to stand in those shoes, because he's not just 
a human, though he is human, and we'll talk about that. He's the son from Psalm 2 that we've already seen quoted in Hebrews and we see quoted all over the New Testament that this is, this is messianic, this is Jesus. He's the one. And so now we're seeing the connectors. We're seeing priesthood, but now we're seeing Christ. He's the ultimate priest. He's the unique priest. Oh, he was appointed all right, but he was appointed as the one who is none other than the Son. Then we keep reading in verse 6, as he said also in another place, well known to a Jewish person, Psalm 110, quoted often in Hebrews, quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's, it. That's stunning as well. For starters, you, you are a priest forever. And we're going to see this later in Hebrews where we have this little problem with our priests. The priests keep dying. And it's a point of emphasis to show that Jesus is unique and Jesus is different because Jesus is the one who is the priest and he's the priest forever. Which is so fascinating because the Old Testament, Psalm 110, was anticipating one who would be able to eventually come and he would be able to be a priest forever. Not dying off. Well, now we see Jesus is the one who could be the priest forever. It's astounding. It's meant to be astounding. Well, what we see is what I've been trying to emphasize in our study of Hebrews is we, we see these connectors. We see that Old Testament is anticipating. Jesus didn't just show up out of nowhere and start making things up that weren't actually there in the Old Testament to begin with. All of a sudden we see that there's specific connectors made just as Psalm 110 was anticipating. He's the guy. He's the one. He's the eternal priest, which becomes very important later in our study of Hebrews. He's also the one who, as it says in verse 6 at the end, after the order of Melchizedek. Who is this guy named Melchizedek? On one level, I'm not going to answer that this morning other than just briefly because in chapter 7, we're going to be up to our ears in Melchizedek-ology. <laughs> we're going to learn all about Melchizedek, okay? So I'm just going to get you used to hearing the word. I think the author of Hebrews is getting you used to it, getting you ready for it. But if we keep reading, we learn all kinds of things about this person named Melchizedek. Let me just give you the, the 30,000-foot level version to at least introduce you to this guy named Melchizedek. Back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 14, I believe it is, um, in Genesis, we see Abram, and he meets this man who is a priest and a king. That means extraordinary, by the way. And his name is Melchizedek. And Abram pays great homage, great respect to Melchizedek. And we're going to learn about that. We're not doing that this morning. But we see he's extraordinary and we see that there's great respect shown to Melchizedek back in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 to 20. And he is extraordinary. What's important, at least at this time, let me just say one more thing about it that might help a little bit. But we have tons to un unpack. It's significant here 
as the author to Hebrews is speaking to Jewish people about Jesus who is greater and he is of the line and he is connected to after the order of Melchizedek. Where, where do we learn about Melchizedek back in Genesis where Abram, oh, we're Jewish people, if that's our mindset, and we have our father Abraham, right? We're all about Abram. And you know Abram. paid tithes, showed respect and utter homage to someone, and it wasn't himself. It was somebody named Melchizedek, who was a king priest, king of Salem. We'll learn about him. Let me just say, Jeru, Salem, all kinds of connectors we're going to be able to pursue later, but we won't do now. The point being for now, let's just see that Jesus is not less than qualified to be the fulfillment of the priesthood. He is qualified and extraordinarily qualified to be the ultimate fulfillment. That's the kind of Christology that we need to see, and that's where we're headed in the rest of our studies as we move forward. Well, continuing on, let's look at verse 7 and then verse 8. More priesthood Christology. In the days of his flesh, and you're mentally thinking days of his flesh, okay, Jesus, now he's probably emphasizing his humanity. That would make sense. That would make him priest qualified as we learned about him in chapter 2. Not only that, in chapter 5, verse 1, in our close context, he was chosen among men. So he really is one of us. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Just pause momentarily. Let me ask you the question. If this is talking about his priesthood, and it is, did he succeed as a priest? Based upon what we learn in this verse? Yeah, he did. You know it's the right answer, even if you have no idea what the verse said. Yes, he did. He succeeds because not only is he one of us, which is a requirement, but he most certainly succeeds because of the way that it ends. He was heard because of his reverence. So as he is, as he is praying, as he is going to God, as he is uh, going there regarding his, his own situation as he's going on behalf of others all that might be wrapped up in this he's successful we know he's successful the intent is to see him as successful because god heard him he didn't shut him off and so in his priestly function as he's going there he's heard by god and that's meant to stand out to us and we say he's a successful high priest which again underscores the fact that he's the ultimate sufficient high priest Certainly, when we read that, we, we hear about his loud cries and tears, and, and we think of Gethsemane, and we think of the, uh, all that was going on there, but it doesn't necessarily have to limit itself only to that, but certainly sees itself in its culminating low point or high point, whichever one you'd like to see. But the main emphasis would seem to be that he, he really was successful. God found his prayers satisfactory. He's a genuine, legitimate priest who is heard as he represents his people. 
Then verse 8 says, and this is worth a big old explanation point. Although he was a son. Well, we've got to stop for just a second. No exclamation point yet, okay? Hold on. Although he was a son. Think with me about what we've learned about the son. Let's take a, just a quick walk back to Hebrews 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us. Climax, high point, Mount Everest times a million. In these last days, he's spoken to us through his what? Through his son. And it just jumps off the page in Hebrews chapter 1. And it's meant to cause us to stagger and to stammer. Oh, this is a God who's revealed himself in a lot of different ways. And he's a communicating God. And he's a revealing God. But you know what? In these last, final, culminating, high point days, he's spoken to us through none other than his unique son, through whom he created the world. And he just unpacks this great truth about Jesus as the Son. Now what I want you to do is I want you to take that and I want you to bring that back to our verse. It's hard to draw a line from that verse back to this one, but at least write in your margin or something. Chapter 1, verse 2. When we read verse 8, although he was a son, you know, no, no. Although he was a son, he's none other than the, the ultimate son we've been learning about. Although he was a son, high, lifted up, exalted to the nth degree, culminating high point. He learned obedience through what he suffered. You know? Humility, humiliation, obedience. He learned obedience through what he suffered. It's this Jesus who's the eternal son who becomes one of us so he can truly, legitimately, genuinely be our high priest. That's who we're talking about in Christianity. That's who we're talking about in the book of Hebrews. The eternal son through whom the Father created the world, is learning obedience through what He suffers. Here's what I wrote down. This is the Son becoming one of us so that He might represent us as our mediator priest. And that's what He does. Learning obedience. Very much emphasizing His humanity. Just like in Luke, he, in the, at the beginning, he, he has to learn the law. Well, why is he going to learn the law of God? He's going to learn the law of God so that he can obey the law of God because he's our representative. And now my mind is racing because I'm thinking about the fact that he's the last Adam, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. Then, it, it just keeps, keeps up the richness. Verse 9 says, I have five stars by verse 9 and 10. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you think I can just keep going to the next verse, you are crazy and you don't know me very well. Um, I mean, there's so much in verse 9. 
we're not even going to scratch the surface, but verse 9 is just, I have so many notes in verse 9 that I don't even know what to do. I'm (laughs) semi-paralyzed. And being made perfect. Let's look at that. Here's here's what I wrote as an interjection for myself to understand, to to try to bring the theology of all of Hebrews to bear upon this, not to mention the, the New Testament and old. And being made perfect. Not because he was sinful, chapter 4, verse 15. It's not that he's lacking, somehow he's morally tainted, so that's not what he's talking about. And being made perfect. But as a real human being who was really obeying the law of God, so as to, I can't help but quote my, uh, can't help myself but quote other scripture, so as to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3, 15. I'm going to read it again. And being made perfect, here's what I interject for my own understanding. Not because he was sinful, that's 4.15. But as a real human, remember he talked about being in the flesh? Remember chapter 2, he has to be really human to be a high priest. But as a real human who was really obeying the law of God so as to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. And being made perfect. See, this is what you need. This is what I need. This is what we need in a Savior. This is what we need in a mediator. This is what we need in a priest. Who's really, truly one of us. Let's keep reading verse 9. He became the source of eternal salvation. By the way, please don't, you know, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Make sure you keep that verse together. And being made perfect, comma, he became the source of eternal salvation. How does Jesus become the source of eternal salvation? He becomes the source of eternal salvation by being made perfect. So I'm not reading too much into being made perfect. It's loaded and heavy and filled and overflowing with theology. And it's expecting us to be able to read something into it. Because he's made perfect, he becomes the source of eternal salvation. Well, yeah. Because once again, He's our representative. He represents us as the perfect one who perfectly fulfills the law, who is what the first Adam never was as the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15. So that He can offer then salvation. Understatement? Eternal salvation. Just to underscore and make sure we understand this isn't temporary. This isn't somehow short-lived. This isn't temporary deliverance where you're going to need another priest to do more sacrifices because they keep on dying and they're not perfect. They're sinful. No, 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 no. We have this high priest who perfectly fulfilled the law. We have this high priest who gives you eternal salvation. The scandal would be to go anywhere else. It'd be an absolute scandal. And then he says to all who obey him. It's really important that you remember in chapter 4, for example, just as an example, chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 6, but we've already seen this happen. The author of Hebrews uses obedience and faith and belief and sometimes uses them interchangeably. 
Okay? Because if there's really faith, really belief, there's going to be obedience, and he, and, he, and he uses them interchangeably. And so no doubt when he says here, for all those who obey him, all those who believe him, all those who have faith in him, all those who trust in him, because it's his work to begin with anyway, maybe he's using the obedience statement here, not only because he's already used it that way, but also because of the fact that he is not only one of us, He's the high priest designated by God after the order of Melchizedek. And if he's after the order of Melchizedek, he's not only a priest, he's also... Anybody? He's a king. Because Melchizedek is a king and a priest. And you obey kings. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. It's great that what's going on. Verses 7 to 10 is a, is a treasure. It is a storehouse of treasure. Underscoring, emphasizing the absolute matchless supremacy of Jesus in his life, in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection. It's just underscoring the magnitude of the greatness of Jesus Christ, his sufficiency, so that when you've got it all in your head and it stirs in your heart, you won't dare think about going anywhere else. It's him. It's him. Not him on a whim. It's him according to plan. Delightfully so. At first hour I was thinking, this is great. I get to preach this again. And now I'm just going to have to find somebody else who wants to listen to me. Um, We're going to have a little revival service in our backyard and call the squirrels and rabbits and dogs to repentance maybe. I don't know. But... I just love to talk about this stuff. I I love to stir the pot to get you to talk about this stuff. It's extraordinary. Now let's move on where we don't want to go. To Woodshedology 101. Verses 11 to 14. Verse 11 says, About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain. And I'm going to do the wrong thing and stop there. And I'm, let, me, let me just pretend. Oh, yes, beloved, it is hard to explain. Melchizedek. Oh, it's very difficult. So if I've been unclear here today, it's, it's not my fault because, you know, it's, it's hard to explain and the Bible says it's hard to explain. <laughs> and we all feel good about ourselves because this is hard stuff to understand. And yeah, I feel much better about being Old Testament illiterate. <laughs> Well, I misread the verse because there's a comma and you're supposed to keep reading, okay? I want to read it that way, but let's let's read it the right way. Verse, Verse 11, about this, we have much to say as Christians and Christian Bible teachers, he says, and it is hard to explain, keep reading, keep reading, keep reading, since you have become dull of hearing. Oh. Now, it's true, I might have a hard time explaining it, but the writer to the Hebrews is not falling on his sword like I might need to. He's got it perfectly figured out in his mind, apparently. The onus comes on 
you and on me as the listener. This congregation can't move on and grow spiritually because they, notice where the culpability or the responsibility is, they have become hard of hearing. Not because of anything that's neutral. Apparently, the, the moral onus is on them. Dull of hearing. Then verse 12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, which, by the way, tells us they're not new converts. Okay, so... They've been Christians for some time now. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God or literally the words of God, the instructions of God. We don't know what that means yet, but he's going to explain what he means by that. No doubt it's something about what he's been talking about. But then verse 12 says, you need milk, not solid food. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. You know, it stings, it hurts, it bludgeons. And now that really does hurt. Point one, there's a difference between childlike faith that Jesus affirms and childishness that we don't see affirmed. He's letting them have it. He's letting them have it because of something they're doing wrong. And need be, if it applies, he's letting you have it because of something you've done wrong. But you might be like me saying, I don't even really know what they did wrong yet. He does tell them, but it might take a little bit of contemplating to know what, what he means. At the end of verse 13, unskilled in the word of righteousness. That's the big problem. The big problem they have, they can't move on and they've got to stay in their diapers even though they're, let's say, 13, okay? We're not going to put them at 75, but they, spiritually, but they're not new converts, they're not babies, they're 14, so they're still sucking their thumb and drinking milk and wearing diapers. And when you see 13-year-olds in diapers, it's problematic, right? Spiritually, they're wearing diapers. Why? Well, because, again, in this verse, verse 13, because they're unskilled in the word of righteousness. So the question we have before us is, what is that? What does it mean to be unskilled in the word of righteousness? Maybe the fact that we have to ask the question shows that we're in diapers. I don't know. Um, Another translation puts it this way. Some of you might have this translation. Um, The teaching about righteousness might help us. I think that's onto the right idea. Because you don't get righteousness, we'll talk about what that is, you've remained in your spiritual state of retardation. Because you don't understand righteousness. That's what he's saying. the teaching about righteousness. Rick Phillips in his commentary on Hebrews I think helps us and puts it this way. Others do as well, but a good simple level. The righteousness that comes from God in the gospel through the work of Jesus Christ and is received by faith. That's what he's talking about. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Christ Jesus who became to us righteousness. 
He's talking about righteousness, I believe, in, in our greater context, as it would relate to the gospel. Righteousness as it would relate to understanding Jesus in his work and therefore the gospel. So let's think about this. Let's flesh this out. Let, don't, don't leave me now. Spiritual immaturity so we can't move on further because we're unskilled in the word of righteousness. We don't understand righteousness. We don't understand how righteousness works. We don't understand how righteousness would work as it would relate to Jesus, as it would relate to the gospel. We need to know this. We need to talk about this. I think here's what he's getting at. You've got to understand that this righteous God requires righteousness. It's emphasized all over the New Testament, all over the Old Testament. He's a just God, same word, righteous, just, fair. He has a straight line. He doesn't change his law and say, oh, jump higher. It's the same. He's fair. He's just. The problem then is because of our rebellion, our sin, we have violated the law of God, and so we're called unrighteous. We're called unjust. We're called sinners. So we have this problem before a righteous God. And so what do we need? What we need is righteousness. And how do we get righteousness? This God is gracious and loving and kind. And so he sends his son Jesus to learn obedience because he's a real human being and he's a representative as the last Adam so that he can gain righteousness for us, right? So that he can fulfill all righteousness according to the law of God, the requirements of God, so that then by believing in Christ, by trusting in Christ, his righteousness, his perfection, if you want a synonym that's not perfect but helps, is then credited to our spiritual bank account so that now God sees us as standing before him as righteous, even though we're not righteous, because we have the righteousness of Christ. And if you want to tie in one more concept that relates to this justification relates to this where god declares us righteous even though we're not righteous how can he do that because we have the righteousness of christ credited to us because he's the one who came to fulfill all righteousness i know i'm just repeating myself now but i'm trying to help get your arms around it he's our righteousness and if he's our righteousness we don't need any other righteousness and if he happens to be our high priest truly one of us but none other than the son and we're going to trust in him who gives himself up for us as a perfect sacrifice then we don't need any other mediator and we don't need any other priest and he is all we need right another way of putting this is we don't get the gospel and how the gospel works as it relates to righteousness and as long as we don't understand how gospel works and righteousness works in relationship to the gospel, then we're going to be sucking our thumb, wetting our pants, doing a bit. How does it go? <laughs> we're going to be spiritually retarded. That's what he's talking about. It's got to be what he's talking about. If the author to Hebrews would have been standing at the doors this morning, and would have taken a little survey and said, um, excuse me, ma'am, I just have a simple question for you. Are you a Christian? I'm a Christian. Could you tell me what righteousness is? What would you have said? Or put it another way, if the, if, if the author of Hebrews would have been standing at the door today and would have said, um, excuse me, sir, if I can just 
ask you a question. Uh, you're, you, you're a Christian, right? I'm a Christian. Um, can, can I just, can you answer this question for me, true or false? Um, God requires perfection. And apart from perfect righteousness, no one will ever go to heaven. True or false? I hope a lot of you would have said true. Make no mistake about it, apart from perfect righteousness, no one will see the light of day in heaven. Now, if you're not a Christian and you don't get that, no scolding, no woodshed allergy for you. If you really are a baby Christian, sucking your thumb, I'm so glad you're a baby Christian. If you're really a baby Christian because you're a new Christian, just keep sucking the thumb, okay? We'll have milk for you after. Thrilled you're here, okay? (laughs) And if you didn't know the answer to the question, you know what? It's all right. But if you've been a Christian for very long and you don't understand that God requires righteousness, you're still in the right place. (laughs) But it's time to move on. It's time to develop. It's time to mature. It's time to become skilled in the word of righteousness. It's time to become skilled in your understanding of the gospel so that you really understand that, oh yes, God does require perfection and we don't meet the requirement. And so God in His perfect grace and according to His love sends His Son to meet the requirement for us so that when we believe in Him, His righteousness is credited to us, a la Philippians chapter 3. And now in Him, we're seen as righteous. And so God declares us righteous even though we're not because of His grace and mercy shown to us in and through the work of Jesus. And this is the gospel. And you say, that sounds like a complicated theology class, 901, graduate level. Nope. This is fundamentals of the faith. The basics. Righteousness. We need righteousness. We don't have righteousness. Where are we going to get righteousness? We're going to get it from none other than Jesus who fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus whose righteousness is credited to us so that God can be, to quote Romans, the righteous and the righteous fire, if you will, of the one who has faith in Jesus. He doesn't use those words, but he uses another word form of that word the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in faith in jesus he's saying so that he can maintain his righteousness and also at the same time provide righteousness for us it's not that hard is it i don't think it's that hard i think it's great i think it's so great for us to consider and to contemplate these basic things. How does God, how does righteousness work in relationship to the gospel? Then verse 14 says, but solid food is for the mature. People who understand the gospel, right? That's prerequisite for maturity for those who have their powers of discernment. Let's just pause just momentarily, not for station identification, but just, just to see what, what he's getting at. What does he mean? Don't take this verse out of context. For those who have their powers of discernment. Discernment regarding what? Discernment in general? That's beneficial. That's good. But how about in our context? So that those who have their powers of discernment as it would relate to righteousness, as it relates to the gospel... So what he's looking for is that we would be discerning, that we would understand how the gospel works and how the gospel doesn't work as it would relate to righteousness, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Good from evil, no doubt, in relationship to Christ as a high priest, in relationship to the gospel. 
Evidence of maturity. You're trained. You're equipped. And you say, I hear this talking, and this talking is about the gospel, but they don't understand how righteousness works. They don't understand how it's Christ's righteousness credited to the believer by faith. They don't get it. You know what? You're discerning enough to say, that's not good. A lot of Jesus, God talk, but it's not good. And over here, you hear the real deal, and you say, that's good. That's right. I'm, I'm affirming that. That shows maturity shows maturity well let's land this plane where we took off to begin with regarding the scandal of the priesthood let me go to where some of you thought I was going to go and say it is indeed a scandal what we see in Roman Catholicism and the priesthood make no mistake about it and I don't mean the sexual perversion, that's a scandal. I mean theologically a scandal that we have multiple mediators in addition to Jesus, the one mediator. That is a scandal. And on Reformation Sunday in a Protestant church, I will say that. But perhaps even more scandalous is the log that is in our eye. We of all people with our history here celebrating on Reformation Sunday should know better. We of all people should know what righteousness is and how righteousness works as it relates to the gospel because we of all people should understand the gospel and how it works. The scandal is right here at home. Lest you doubt me, go to the Christian bookstore and try to learn something about the gospel and what it is and what it isn't. Lest you think I'm making this up, ask someone today what the gospel is. Lest you think I'm making this up, ask someone today in our very midst, does God require perfection, perfect righteousness? My guess is there are people in this very room who will say no. And if that's the case, you'll never understand Jesus and your need for a priest, a perfect high priest who perfectly atones because of his perfect life, because of his perfect death, because of his perfect resurrection. So let's talk about scandals. But let's talk about our scandal. And let's be motivated to learn the word of righteousness. So we can proclaim the word of righteousness. So that we can then embrace and cling to and hold on our perfect high priest who secures for us because of his righteousness, secures for us by faith, by obedience, to quote the actual text, eternal salvation. Because of righteousness. His, not yours. Christ is glorious. Christ is grand. Run from the woodshed back to the house. And embrace Christ and only Christ. Who is our righteousness. Lord, thanks for this morning and for great, great, even confrontational teaching from this text of Scripture. I'm grateful, I'm thankful, I'm thankful that you don't leave us where we are and um, that you encourage us along the way with both a tender hand and also with a, a very strong hand. Lord, equip us, make us men and women who understand the righteousness of Christ that we need. Help us to understand your righteousness. Help us to understand our own unrighteousness. And we would cling to the Savior 
that we would find him to be our everything, our all in all. Thank you for your loving kindness and your grace and your mercy for leading us and guiding us tenderheartedly as a shepherd. And may we do likewise regarding those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.